Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 3rd of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host this afternoon, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Uh, well, we're going to get straight on because uh, the Coronavirus Act is, uh, well, it's up for renewal by the end of the month. Uh, so let's just have a look at this. This is what it looked like the last time. Almost nobody in the House of uh, Commons. It'll be the same again this time. So will it be renewed? Uh, well, last time was March, of course, because it has to be renewed every six months. Um, and at that point, if you remember, I'm just going to run through that Esther McVeigh published an article in the uh, Telegraph. We need to urgently bring to an end the sweeping emergency powers. And I just wanted to remind everybody what she said uh, at the time. COVID is, of course, she said, a deadly disease to those who are vulnerable to it. But lockdowns and restrictions have had a disproportionate social, emotional and academic impact on children and young people. When lockdown was first announced, we were told that it would be sent packing within 12 weeks. Uh, later, we were reassured that it would be significant return to normality by Christmas, and Christmas was cancelled. Uh, earlier this year, vaccines were said to be our way out, yet ministers cautioned that we can't vaccinate our way out of this. Uh, the whole point of vaccinating vulnerable people so that infection by COVID uh, is so that infection by COVID cannot harm them. Uh, we've got to stop this muddled thinking. Not only are we abandoning the science and denting public confidence and trust in both politics and the vaccine, we're destroying livelihoods, damaging people's mental health and welfare, uh, and it's our disabled and disadvantaged young people that suffer most. Uh, ministers want to renew the Coronavirus Act for six months until the end of September. Uh, this law gives unprecedented, disproportionate, extreme and wholly unnecessary parts to the police, allowing officers to detain us all indefinitely. Renewing these powers would, determine, would demonstrate a lack of confidence and belief in the COVID vaccines. Uh, we need to urgently bring to an end these sweeping state powers and the ability of the state to interfere in our lives. So um, in the next couple of weeks, uh, there's going to be more of this, I'm sure, in the uh, press because uh, the what's being suggested is that there are a number of MPs uh, who are very much against renewal of the Act. Uh, the government, as I understand it, is very much for renewal of the Act. Um, and, uh, well, there's still a lot of people circulating uh, information on social media via email and so on um, about the pretty draconian uh, powers that the Act gives. Um, and, uh, well, I think the next two weeks are very important if people want to get involved in making sure that that Act is not renewed. And they need to get involved. I've just always winced slightly, Mike, when I see the muddled thinking used by one of the politicians, because one minute she's talking about muddled thinking, which suggests that it's all rather an accident. It's a, it's a little bit of the so-called cock-up theory. These people have made a bit of a mistake. And then she changes her language and she's using extreme powers unnecessary. So she's into very serious, dangerous things. And of course, this is not muddled thinking. This is deliberate, malicious policy by the British government in order to shut down, lock down, quarantine people. This is deliberate. And these MPs need to start really thinking about what central government is doing, because it's clear that most of the backbenchers do not have a clue as to what's being cooked up in central government. I think that's right. Um, uh, well, then, then Lester McVeigh in that, uh, remember that was published in March uh, this year, did mention uh, the effect on mental health. And the question then is, uh, what effect did that have? Were, the, were there extra suicides last year or not? Uh, well, if you read the um, headline in the Mail Online, uh, England's first COVID lockdown didn't trigger a spike in suicides. Official data rates show uh, official data shows rate was lower than in the five years before the pandemic struck. Well, if you read that headline and take it on face value, you would think that in fact there's nothing to see there. But is that true? Well, it's of course it's not true. Um, and uh, well, this is why. But anyway, before I get on to why, I just wanted to show uh, one particular. Uh, response. And in fact, the, the comments below this article were all, uh, well, mostly fairly negative to the to the mail and to the, the stand that they're taking on this. Uh, and so uh, one person here is saying, since I personally know of three people who took their own lives during the first lockdown, and yet no one who died of COVID, I simply don't believe this. Try harder next time to make your claims more plausible. Uh, and the uh, follow-up uh, comment there was, I don't believe it either. I know of two teenagers who took their own life last year and one 25-year-old, all due to the lockdown. 
Well, what exactly were they talking about? Well, they're talking about uh, new statistics from the Office for National Statistics. And here is uh, the graph that the ONS has published. And the first thing to note there is that this is an aged, an age standardized suicide rate. Um, so this is not, these are not absolute figures that they have uh, published here. This is age standardized. Um, and of course that gives a, a, probably a better picture uh, if you're comparing to previous years. Uh, but the other key thing to note here is, well, as I say, it's not absolute figures, so uh, we would be very keen to see the absolute figures. Uh, but the other thing to note here, this is from April and July 2020. This is this is the the, the time period that they're talking about. So that was very early uh, in the lockdown, and really the effect of lockdown uh, wasn't seen until probably later than that. Um, so uh, we've got to really pay attention to what happens when the next round of figures come out. But even at that point. It's still not quite correct because if we look at what the at the caveats that the ONS talks about, um, they're saying figures are for deaths occurring rather than deaths registered in each calendar year. Because of the length of time it takes to complete a coroner's inquest, it can take months or even years for a suicide to be registered. So actually, this these figures are speculative at this point. And they do say this. These are provisional death occurrences data uh, which are used for 2020 in this article. They're subject to change. This enables timely analysis to be completed to monitor trends, but actually it doesn't even provide that um, because until there is a definitive uh, cause of death, uh, you know, registered uh, and actually a coroner's inquest if necessary, um, the, you know, there's, how are they actually getting the information that, uh, that it is a suicide? It's, it's not confirmed at this point. So equally, uh, somebody who has died uh, perhaps at this point it's been attributed to COVID, uh, may in fact not have died as a re result of COVID. It requires uh, further investigation. Yes, if, if I just bring that uh, slide back on screen, the thing that caught my eye straight away is that the actual text doesn't, um, doesn't relate there it, it, because it's basically saying that uh, provisional death occurrences data is used. The data is provisional. That's a caveat, that's a warning. They're subject to change. But then we say this enables timely analysis. Yes, that's... that's... Well, these two, you can't reconcile those two. So this is deliberate misleading of the public again. It's sad that we're seeing the ONS getting into this game because previously the ONS had been really rigorous in ensuring that its data was correct. It was only uh, when the COVID issue came up that we saw the government pressure on the ONS itself. Well, uh, okay, I think I'm sticking uh, up for them a bit. Uh, yes, perhaps. Well, we'll we'll see. But anyway, let's uh, move on because they've also published uh, some more information, and that's about vaccine hesitancy in young people. So let's have a look at uh, what they say here. In June 2021, a qualitative pilot study exploring reasons for vaccine hesitancy was undertaken with 17 previous respondents aged 16 to 29 years of the Opinions and Lifestyles Survey who had indicated they were fairly unlikely or very unlikely to get a coronavirus vaccine. None had subsequently had the vaccine at the time of the research. Uh, primary factors for increasing vaccine hesitancy included distrust of the vaccine, uh, that's safety and content, distrust of government and of those encouraging vaccine take-up, concern about known and unknown side effects, including on fertility, and belief it was unnecessary for those at low risk of harm from the virus. Uh, changes in vaccine hesitancy, they say, appeared related to media influences, experiences of others having the vaccine and opinions of those in close social networks. Uh, the impact of the vaccine passports was mixed. Sorry, the impact of vaccine passports was mixed and could result in encouraging some participants to be vaccinated, but discouraging others completely. Generally, vaccination in the future uh, was considered by participants, but this was often far in the future because of wish to, to know more about long-term side effects and depended on more information, research and medical studies being available. Uh, there were subtle differences between some demographic characteristics. The youngest participants were more influenced by negative social media narratives. Female participants were more concerned about fertility-related side effects, while black participants indicated higher levels of generalized distrust. I mean, I have to say, Brian, that uh, the responses that they've had there seem quite reasonable to me, uh, but uh, maybe that's just me. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, okay, let's uh, let's move on to this uh, vaccine passports and uh, the announcement today that uh, Nicholas Sturgeon uh, has uh, decided that COVID COVID vaccine passports can be downloaded in Scotland uh, as of today. Uh, so uh, what she's saying, uh, people can download, according to this uh, Russia Journal article, people can download a copy of their vaccination certificate from today as the Scottish government plans to introduce new measures to require the documents. The so-called vaccine passports will be needed from later this month to gain entry to nightclubs and some large events. Um, so what kind of large events are we talking about? So uh, proof of vaccination will be required uh, to enter nightclubs and adult entertainment venues, uh, unseated indoor live events with more than 500 people in the audience, unseated outdoor live events with more, sorry, that was out, unseated indoor live events with more than 500 people, unseated outdoor events, live events with more than 4,000 people, uh, and any event that has more than 10,000 people in attendance. Um, they're saying that at this point, there are no plans to introduce certification for the wider hospitality industry, uh, but they say they're gonna keep that under review over the autumn and the winter. Uh, well, if that's what's going on in Scotland, uh, we might have a look at uh, another country uh, because maybe we're getting a clue as to where things are going in general, uh, and that's Pakistan. So uh, this is the Pakistani National Highways and Motorway Police uh, who tweeted this out a few days ago on August the 26th. Uh, get ready, you get vaccinated before 15th of September and carry your certificate along because sorry, no vaccine, no motorway. Um, so uh, people that are unvaccinated will not be allowed to travel on Pakistani motorways from the uh, 15th of September. Uh, unvaccinated people will not be allowed to use public transport from the 15th of October. Uh, there'll be no petrol available to unvaccinated people in Lahore starting from, well, actually that started on the 1st of September. Uh, there'll be vaccination requirement for domestic air travel from the 30th of September. Uh, people will not be allowed to go shopping in shopping malls from the 31st of August. And uh, from the 30th of September, only people that have had both vaccine shots uh, will be allowed into the shopping malls. Uh, and uh, from the 31st of August, people with one vaccine uh, shot uh, um, are allowed into uh, hotels and restaurants, but that will change again on the 30th of September when people with a single shot will not be allowed to go into hotels and restaurants. Uh, and uh, you'll only be allowed to attend uh, marriage ceremonies after the 30th of September if you've had both doses. Um, so there you go. That seems like quite a lot. A lot a lot happening there, but we're getting more clues, aren't we, that this is global policy yes. coming in. So what we're seeing happening in UK is mirrored across other countries. This can't be accidental. Uh, what we've got is a driving agenda for these global lockdown and quarantine policies. But a country that's, country that's been hit very hard, and we reached out... Uh, um, on Wednesday for people to uh, give us more information was about Australia. We know things are very bad. Anecdotally, um, people speaking to me who've got uh, relatives in Australia are talking about how bad it is. The word nightmare was used by one lady describing uh, the helicopters um, uh, speaking out, telling people to stay indoors, helicopters up at night, drones um, surveilling people. So things very bad in Australia. And today we've had some more information in. And uh, first of all, let's bring in the United Australia Party. So um, they have been standing up. This is part of their uh, web page, Lockdowns Destroy Jobs. And then they're saying we can never trust the Liberal Labour parties again. Well, I think we could say that for UK. Uh, but this is the uh, MP, Craig Kelly, who's actually had the courage to go on video to spell out his warning to Australians. And I think we would do well to have a little listen to this uh, video clip and hear what this man says. I'm just here in my office. I just about to head back to Sydney. I've been away from home for close to four weeks. I think that's the longest that I've ever been away from Sydney uh, in my life but it's worth it to fight for the issues that are important. Today, in Parliament, we gave the, the government, the Liberal Party and the Labour Party, the chance to support a no domestic vaccine passports, and they both voted against it. Only 
uh, George Christensen, a man of integrity and courage, crossed the floor to sit with me to vote for the no vaccine passport bill, to even just bring it on for a debate. So the dice cast, we know where things sit. These vaccine passports will be with us forever, as we have seen in Israel. These people want to inject us forever. They want us to hold our freedoms at ransom forever until we bow down to their commands. The only way that we'll be able to stop vaccine passports in this country is to vote out both the Labor and Liberal candidates at the next election. It's quite simple. The United Australia Party will not stand for vaccine passports in this country. So at the next election, you'll have a choice. You can vote for vaccine passports and the suspensions of your freedoms if you vote Labor or Liberal or Greens or Nationals, or you can vote for freedom with the United Australia Party. As I said, the dice set, we know where the contest is, and we are up for the fight. So very measured analysis there by, by that man. He says the only thing we can do is vote these people out. Well, is it the only thing? I'm going to challenge that slightly and say, well, every area that uh, people can challenge, there needs to be a challenge. And if the voting system is part of that, yes, people need to vote. But of course, everywhere that people say, no, we're not accepting this, they are challenging on the spot every hour of every day. And I think it's, it's that sort of uh, determination which is required. But interestingly, we're not seeing any of this comment on the BBC or, or in, within the newspapers in UK. So clear that there's a media blackout effectively on what's happening in Australia. And the Australians who are now talking to the UK column are saying how difficult it is uh, to get hold of even reports within Australia. And of course, the immense distances and the shutting down of some of the roads is making this more difficult. It's very difficult for Australians to understand what's even happening in their own country. And of course, many of them are actually shut up in curfews. Uh, but uh, one of the issues that has uh, come to the fore quite a bit is this. To, because, sorry, sorry, um, I put the wrong uh, graphic up, but go ahead. Okay, um, is the uh, truckers because they've, um, uh, they have been protesting about the fact that they think they're going to have to be uh, vaccinated in order to keep their jobs, but also that the interstate uh, roads have been blocked and the truckers therefore are finding that their jobs are suffering as a result of that uh, lockdown. So let's have a look at this little uh, clip reporting on what the truckers have been up to. Who trucks all it takes? Shutting down the M1, this is no ordinary roadblock. Southbound at Reedy Creek, police redirecting some, but for most it was too late. Kilometres of motorists trapped. As truckies rally, unsanctioned by their union, in fear they'll face a choice, get vaccinated or fired. The fear, the, the anger, the anxiety is just building and building and building. Was, that was the clip. Um, very short, but it at least emphasises what's going on. But if I heard the lady reporting correctly, she describes the people who are trapped in those queues. They're the moderates. I'm pretty sure she says the moderates are trapped in the queues. And of course, this is the media spin. Those nasty truckers have no right to be doing that. We're not interested in the problems of the truckers or the warnings of the truckers. Um, the people who are in those queues are all the moderates. So this is uh, more media spin. But can we remind people that it was the British government that sold the behavioural change technology that came out of the behavioral insights team of the British government 2010 document Mindspace that was sold to Australia. So we can be pretty sure that uh, not only the Australian politicians and uh, people inside authority and the Australian public all being subjected to this uh, applied psychology in order to get the uh, government message across. Well, where does it head to? It gets worse because this is Australia, South Australia, uh, conducting a home quarantine trial. Uh, this report you'll find very, very easily um, on the internet, but basically uh, the trial's due to start with people returning from New South Wales and Victoria. 
and a, the, the Premier, Stephen Marshall, said he hoped the trial would be expanded to international travellers in subsequent weeks, making it a national first. Those in home-based quarantine, notice uh, uh, the wording there, home-based quarantine will need a, to download an app developed by the South Australian government to prove they're staying at home while required to. People wanting to return to South Australia and home quarantine will have to apply to the health authority. Um, so what are people going to have to do? Well, they have to prove that they have a place to isolate during their quarantine period, but they've also got to be fully vaccinated. And those who are approved will have to download the South Australian Government Home Quarantine app, which uses, quote, geolocation and facial recognition software to track those in quarantine. So let's just uh, follow through some of the uh, comments here from Stephen Marshall, the South Australia Premier. He said the app will contact people at random asking to provide proof of their location within 15 minutes. We don't tell them how often or when on a random basis they have to reply, but they have to reply within 15 minutes. So imagine, Mike, the stress. You've just talked about mental health. Imagine the stress of somebody who's locked in their home and they're going to get this thing calling them up effectively. They've got 15 minutes to respond. And uh, what's going to happen if they don't? Uh, well, this is going to happen. If a person cannot successfully verify their location or identity when requested, uh, South Australia Health will notify the police who will conduct an in-person check on the person in quarantine. So you don't know when this is going to happen. You've got 15 minutes. You can't find your phone. You're fumbling for your phone. You don't find it in time. The police are going to turn up no matter what time of the day or night. Uh, the random check is conducted. And uh, this man is amazing because he says, I think every South Australian should feel pretty proud that we are the national pilot for the home-based quarantine app. I'm looking at this man and the vacant look in his eyes, Mike, but a very, very dangerous uh, individual by the fact that he appears to have no concept of what he's actually up to. Uh, luckily, some people in Australia are beginning to uh, wake up to what's happening. And this is from the Greens. And we've got a lady, Lydia Thorpe, the senator for Victoria, and she's pointing out more police powers uh, less protections coming. What's she talking about? Well, she's talking about this, the Australia Surveillance Legislation Amendment brackets identify and disrupt Bill 2020. Uh, so this has now been uh, passed, uh, passed through. She says the Labour and Liberal parties have voted to pass the Surveillance Legislation Amendment identify and disrupt Bill 2020 which makes three new warrants available to the Australian Federal Police and Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission. Um, so let's just highlight the key bits here. The network activity warrants will allow the police and the Criminal Intelligence Commission to monitor online activity without investigating or accusing a person of crime. Do you like the sound of this one, Mike? Account takeover warrants enable police to take over an account and change their data, which could then be used as evidence in a criminal proceeding. Data disruption warrants grant law enforcement data disruption powers to stop the suspected commission of an offence using a computer. If a person with relevant knowledge does not comply with a data disruption warrant, it could result in a 10-year jail term. And... Uh, the Richardson Review concluded that this bill enables the police and the Criminal Intelligence Commission to be, quote, judge, jury and executioner. Uh, they say that's not how we deliver justice in this country. Um, so Senator Lydia Thorpe is at least one of the people speaking out. The bill does not identify or explain, explain why these powers are necessary. And our allies in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand do not grant law enforcement these rights, to which we probably should say yet, Mike, mm. I would think. So really draconian legislation coming into Australia. And um, we've got the online harms bill building here. I think these same restrictions are certainly going to come into UK unless we stand up and say, no, we're not having it.
Um, but uh, the question is, how do we capture the uh, the next, the coming generations? Uh, well, maybe this gives us a clue. Here is uh, a, a, uh, an article on the World Economic Forum website, uh, and uh, it's entitled Three Ways to Disrupt Education and Help Bridge the Skills Gap. Uh, this is currently being discussed on the UK Column Forum, so if uh, anybody wants to get involved in that discussion, please do join us. But anyway, uh, I thought it was quite an interesting article. They're talking about disruption, of course, uh, disrupting the legacy curriculum. Uh, this is not a simple one-step curriculum change, not an add-on subject on, in computer science, but an ongoing journey in transforming the processes, the experience, even the purpose, opening the doors wider to, to technology. This is not to undermine the need to focus on the history or on history or the arts. So it's uh, really what this article is about is uh, attempting to bring children more into the sort of future digital world uh, of AI and so on. Um, let's just have a look at the graphic that goes with it because they talk about the future of jobs and this is highly interesting uh, because for example, in healthcare, general medical practitioners may be replaced by an app. Um, well, a lot of people are experiencing uh, that perhaps general practitioners in the UK at the moment aren't any more useful than an app. Uh, they're certainly less engaging than an app because it's impossible. Well, perhaps you spend most of your time engage with a, an engaged tone on the phone or something, uh, but certainly it's pretty hard to get in contact with the general practitioner already. Uh, and uh, more and more of them are effectively uh, destroying their own jobs by bringing in more and more digitization of their services. Uh, specialization will be the key. Uh, and medical robo robotic assistance and AR and VR will be the mainstream of healthcare uh, in the coming years. Uh, in manufacturing, uh, alive and intelligent data sets, AI, 3D and autonomous production will combine to create humanless factories. Uh, sustainability will be at the heart of future production. Uh, humans will only work on the top of the production chain for ideation and prototype generation. Uh, but will they even be doing that? Well, of course, uh, once you remove uh, humans out of the uh, workforce completely, uh, well, what is left for them? Uh, we've already seen headlines in the last few days about uh, the need to uh, uh, regulate the likes of uh, Netflix and, and uh, Amazon and so on, uh, because you know so many people are spending so much time while they've been on furlough for the last 18 months uh, watching stuff on these programs and the uh, UK film industry is, uh, is growing uh, in order to try to create more content for this. But how will people earn a living? Well, of course, they're going to earn their livings through universal basic income. Uh, vaccine passports, universal basic income, central bank digital currencies. We start to see how these uh, systems are being merged together to create uh, a mechanism of control effectively. Uh, and social credit. Uh, there's a huge uh, criticism of China uh, amongst many people through, because of their social credit scheme. But frankly, we're building something which is uh, significantly worse uh, than anything China has done. Uh, and then on banking, of course, cashless society will become the norm. Uh, physical banks will not ex may not exist at all. Well, that's already happening. Branches being closed almost on a daily basis. Uh, and banks may become Community platforms with an ecosystem of services centered around experience and expense, expanse. Not entirely certain what that means, but it goes on to say machines will do everything. Humans will be needed only to humanize value. Yes, so hopefully that all makes sense. But basically what it is talking about is uh, we need to reorganize uh, to disrupt the education system so that people will accept this new future. Um, and, uh, well, the new future doesn't really involve humans, as far as I can see. Certainly not as far as the World Economic Forum sees, and, of course, it's one of the key bodies setting the global political policy. Perhaps we should just um, give a little bit of an explanation about the, the disruption and disruptors, which is coming up more and more in documentation we see for this global globalist policy. And the simple agenda with disruption is that if you have an organization or perhaps a whole country that is stable, it's got a history, everybody knows their jobs, it's quiet, it's efficient, and uh, life goes on in a calm, reasonable way. If you want to direct that country onto a new political path or the organization onto a new political, uh, a, a new operational or political path, 
then the first thing you've got to do is destabilize it, disrupt it, because once you've started the destabilization process, the uh, theory is it can then be steered into the new direction. So disruption is the start of transforming from one state into the new desired political state. And we're seeing this, of course, in national policy level, but also in globalist policy level. Yes. Okay. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, also, do share our material on the various uh, platforms, including brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, and so on. Now, uh, let's uh, move on to, uh, to some excellent news, Brian. Uh, here we go. Uh, to today, that was actually yesterday, uh, Sajid Javid accepted the expert recommendations from the Independent Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization to offer a third vaccine dose to people aged 12 and over with severely weakened immune systems. So, so we know that the, the, the safety trials have not been done for numerous categories, certainly including children. Uh, and now we're into third vaccines for vulnerable people from the age of 12. Yes, uh, and uh, we know people with, or this is rather, Sajid Javid says he knows people with specific conditions that can make them particularly vulnerable to COVID-19 may have received less protection against the virus from two vaccine doses. Um, this, well, we'll come on to uh, where this has come from in a second. Uh, this is not the start of the booster program. Uh, we're continuing to plan for this to begin in September. That's the booster program to ensure the protection people have built from vaccines is maintained. Uh, COVID-19 vaccines have saved more than 105,000 lives and prevented 24 million infections in England alone. Now, before we uh, get on to uh, where they decided that the third dose was necessary for vulnerable people, I just want to remind everybody about this claim that the government is, uh, is uh, making for uh, the efficacy of COVID vaccines and, and how they arrived at this number. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to go back to the very first press release on this, um, where they were claiming 10,000 lives saved. This is from March. Uh, but actually, for, with each month since then, that number has gone from 10,000 uh, and has increased each month. Uh, so the latest claim now is 105,000 lives saved. Uh, if you want to find out where they get this information from, it's uh, the impact of COVID-19 vaccines on mortality in England. Uh, and this particular one that I'm showing on screen it covers uh, the period December 2020 to February 2021. But there, there's a monthly release on this. You can go and find it on the UK government website. Uh, and at that point, they were saying 6,100 deaths uh, prevented. Uh, and But I just want to remind everybody how they came to this conclusion, because it's based on estimations of the impact. It's based on uh, both, well, they say that both the lockdown and the vaccination program likely, are likely to have impacted on incidence of COVID-19 cases. Therefore, we're, there are challenges in estimating the impact of uh, any particular uh, intervention. They said that vaccine effectiveness against mortality was based on uh, the most recent public health uh, England estimates of effectiveness of vaccination. Uh, they talked about assumptions uh, because they assumed it would take 31 days before the effect of vaccination on deaths was observed. Uh, they were talking about computer models uh, using a dynamic age-structured model uh, that has been continually matched to national and regional data through the pandemic. We compare simulations with and without vaccination. And, and uh, in each one of these releases, as they've gone on, uh, they've clarified the, the types of models that they're using. But this number, this claim of 105,000 deaths prevented by the vaccination program is wholly based on their models. Uh, and uh, well, it's not really based on any real uh, evidence that any lives have been saved so far. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, well, yeah, sorry, I, I'm I was, silent, Mike, because I, I'm, I obviously watched this come up on our screens. And it, it's just evident that the lies to the public are increasing and increasing. We can't even trust the basic data coming through the ONS. We can't trust the modeling. We can't trust the government's reaction with the pharmaceutical and the vaccine companies. The whole thing is a constructed lie to the to the public. It is so so apparent. So my silence is simply I don't I don't know what to say anymore. Right. Well okay. Well where did the where did this uh, need for a third dose for uh, vulnerable people or people that are immunocompromised come from. It came from the Octave trial, 
Uh, this is uh, run by the National Institute for Health Research. Um, and uh, what they're saying is that uh, uh, immunosuppression varies, is what the British government is saying. Immunosuppression varies widely in severity and duration. Many people who are immunosuppressed have lower levels of antibodies after COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, and uh, so that the data from the Octave trial has shown uh, that almost everyone that, that was uh, immunosuppressed mounted an immune response after two doses, uh, but that, uh, in fact, in around 40% of these people, the levels of antibodies were extremely low. Okay, so that's what's justifying the third dose for immunosuppressed people, but it's, it's based on this notion of antibodies. So I just wanted to bring uh, this paper uh, on screen. Uh, this is uh, emerging from the CDC, Emerging Infectious Diseases, uh, Volume 27, Number 9, September 2021. Uh, and the paper is entitled Predictors of uh, Neuro, uh, uh, sorry, Non-Seroconversion After SARS-CoV-2 Infection. And let's just look at the abstract here. It says, not all persons recovering from severe acute respiratory system coronavirus 2 infection develop SARS-CoV-2 specific antibodies. Uh, we show that uh, non-seroconversion uh, non is associated with younger age and higher, higher RT-PCR cycle threshold values and, and identify SARS-CoV-2 viral loads, loads in the uh, nasopharynx as a major correlate of the systemic antibody response. So they're saying that uh, um, basically uh, there is not necessarily uh, an antibody response if you've had the infection and therefore they're using this to, to justify uh, vaccination and so on. But look, the, this whole issue of uh, antibodies uh, is a very interesting one. We'll remind everybody about this again. But what they said in this is they studied 72 people, all of whom who had had a previous positive RT-PCR test who were symptom-free for uh, greater than three weeks before blood was collected for testing. Uh, they didn't uh, look at T cells at all in this uh, in this particular study. That might have given a better understanding of immunity or not, or you know, if there was no immunity. They're only looking at antibodies. T cells don't count as far as this particular study is concerned. Um, but the point here is that the innate immune system. There are many studies showing that the innate immune system fights. Uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 off so quickly that antibodies don't get a chance to develop. Uh, so let's just look at some of the uh, the studies on this. A majority of uninfected adults show pre-existing antibody reactivity against SARS-CoV-2. This is not specific antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. This is pre-existing antibodies to other coronaviruses uh, reacting against SARS-CoV-2. So that the, the, the latest CDC study is looking at specific antibodies and the fact that the specific antibodies aren't present. Uh, so what did this say? We determined uh, that more than 90% of uninfected adults showed antibody reactivity against the spike receptor binding domain uh, and terminal domains and uh, other proteins from SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we conclude that most adults display pre-existing antibody cross-reactivity against, uh, against SARS-CoV-2, which further supports investigation of how this may impact the clinical severity of uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 vaccine responses. Uh, even the BBC in the early days, although they changed their tune as soon as the vaccinations came along, uh, coronavirus immunity may be more widespread than tests suggest. Uh, and what were they saying? People testing negative for coronavirus antibodies may have still may still have some immunity, a study has suggested. For every person testing positive for antibodies, two were found to have specific T cells, which identify and destroy infected cells. Uh, and uh, then we've got another uh, article in Science here: T cells found in COVID-19 patients bode well for long-term immunity. Uh, another one: targets of T cell responses to uh, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus in humans with COVID-19 disease and unexposed individuals, in which they said, importantly, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive CD4 T cells in 40 to 60% of unexposed individuals, suggesting cross-reactive T cell recognition between circulating common cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. And even Sarah Gilbert, the person who developed the uh, Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine last year had said, it's possible we're underestimating natural or already acquired immunity to this virus. There's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies, but have developed a T cell response. Uh, and also from Oxford University, Sir John Bell saying, so there's probably background T cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. 
those T cells get a bit tired once you're beyond the age of 65 and not be as effective at removing a virus. But the question is, if the CDC is saying that they're concerned that there isn't a, a, a specific SARS-CoV-2 antibody response in many cases, uh, then we've got to ask this question. If that's true, uh, if, and if everything that we've said up until now is true, then what effect does a vaccine-derived specific immune response have on this general immune response? If we have a general immune response, which we seem to have in many, many cases, then uh, we're use, by using the, the, the mass vaccination program uh, that we have, we're training the immune system to be specific uh, to SARS-CoV-2. Well, what effect does that have uh, on a response to other uh, uh, other va uh, viruses and other uh, illnesses? Well, we, we're seeing other professionals saying that it's going to have a negative response, and that's aside from the problems with the immune system as a whole that the vaccine's giving us an adverse effect. Yes. Um, so more data... Uh, will be apparent within the MHRA yellow car, but also the American VAERS system, which we will be able to comment on uh, in more detail in the future. Uh, okay, let's have a look at this. This is from uh, uh, the... Um, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the organisation, but it's a, it's a think tank looking at uh, uh, employment issues in the UK, uh, and they have uh, just released the latest jobs recovery tracker. Uh, with data, um, and they found uh, that demand for workers remains high across the UK amidst growing labour shortages. Now, many uh, headlines on this over the last number of days, mostly fo focusing on truckers. We've covered that on uh, on this programme. Um, but uh, you can go and have a look uh, on the, uh, if you find this tweet uh, for the Rec Press office. I think it's the Recruitment and Employment That's the one. Thank board. you very much, yep. Brian. Yes. Um, and... Uh, uh, well, let's have a look at what ITV was saying, because they were focusing on one particular aspect of this, uh, which is the care sector. Now, uh, the uh, uh, recruitment uh, organization did mention, uh, I think there are currently about 65,000 uh, job uh, vacancies in the care sector at the moment. But ITV saying here that uh, the care sector is facing its worst ever staffing crisis, according to a complimentary survey that they, that they have run. Um, None of the media coverage on this, of course, is uh, discussing why there is a care sector problem. Uh, and, uh, well, I've seen some commentary, which is unconfirmed as far as I'm concerned, because I, haven't, uh, I don't know the veracity of the information, but I've seen one uh, uh, statistic, which is that 30% of people uh, have, are in the process of leaving, have either left or in the process of leaving the care sector. And uh, you've got to wonder why uh, one particular uh, media outlet, which is the Shropshire Star, but this hasn't had broad media coverage as far as I know, um, are, is making the point that hundreds of uh, care workers in Shropshire have yet to be jabbed as the compulsory vaccine deadline looms. So the question is, is this compulsory vaccine uh, deadline one of the drivers for people to leave the care industry? Is this why there's a shortage of staff in the care industry? I think it's got to be one, Mike, by the number of people in the care sector that are uh, contacting the UK column to yes. say how unhappy they are that they're being forced. They believe that they're being forced into the situation where they have to have a, a, a vaccination or two or three, whatever it's going to be, or they're going to lose their job. So I don't think there's any doubt from the information coming into us that that's the case. Uh, well, if care workers are being lost, and of course um, the majority of the care workers are women, uh, what's happening as far as the military are concerned? And I'm going to thank the viewers who pointed this out to me. Uh, we're going back to the 25th of August, so a few days ago, but I think this is well worth reporting. Here's the BBC News headline. Afghanistan, the Sandhurst Sisterhood, trying to save Afghans. And um, we've got a picture of a, in fact, this lady is a retired major, uh, it is stated in the article, but they talk almost as though she's still serving. Uh, we'll come on to her in a moment, but let's have a look at what they said about the so-called sisterhood. Um, so this is Alice Bromwich herself. Uh, she said that she was at home on Saturday night when she got the message. She just arrived back from a work trip when it flashed up on WhatsApp. I'm stuck here. Please help me get out. Now, if you're unsure what that's talking about, we're to believe that she was getting a message directly from somebody 
who was stuck in the uh, evacuation chaos in, in Afghanistan, and they'd come to her in order to try and help get them out. Um, now, this is a paragraph from later in the article, so the two were not immediately together, but I've put them on screen because I think it's, this second one's important. She and her peers have jumped into action using their, quote, military network to try and help. Alice's officer training was at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and she's part of a group of 2,500 female veterans nicknamed the Sandhurst Sisterhood who have been inundated with messages. One of the ladies had 30 people messaging her, uh, Alice said. So if you get into this article, um, here's Major Alice Bromage. Um, she is very clear that this network is operating. And as we're going to see, astonishingly, this uh, uh, network was getting involved during the military operations for the evacuation. And I think this raises a lot of questions. Let's have a look at this little film clip from the BBC. As we've heard from the British military have been male, um, I, certainly in the reports I've been reading and listening and watching. But how is it in the last 10 days or so, having served there, to, to look at our role and, and, and how do you feel? It's heart rendering. I joined the army at 17. Like I say, my entire adult life has been given to protecting those that can't protect themselves. And you feel like your time away is absolutely worthwhile. And I wouldn't swap that for the world, but to see it disintegrate and then to get those text messages on your phone of please help me, please help me. This isn't a Star Wars movie where it's coming through R2D2. This is real. It's coming onto your own phone at night. Here are the passport details of my family, please help. On the human level, you're seeing families being torn apart. We are, as military, a political tool. We all appreciate that, but that doesn't stop us being human where we create those human relationships, where when someone says, please help, you want to do so. And it's very um, painful <laughs> when you can only do so much. What do you reply? What can you reply? Uh, the first thing I did when I received all those details was say, see what I can do. And I then rang into someone who I know has been helping with the military effort for the evacuation and said, what do I do? So the female military, both serving in uh, X, has a, a network called the Sandhurst Sisterhood, which is two and a half thousand female officers. And that has just been alive with how to help. For example, there's another veteran ex-military lady who's running a security company in Kabul. She's doing what she can. There are the funding pages to try and make sure that we can raise funds to actually be able to pay for the security staff to help get other people out. So the little clip does end abruptly like that when you watch it through the article. Um, what is this lady saying that's of interest? Well, there, there are a great number of things. But of course, the first thing she said is that she regarded her job in the army as uh, protecting vulnerable people. And I think the first thing we'd have to say is was a job not to protect um, people within the United Kingdom as a, as a first stance. Or does she regard herself as being some sort of international policeman? Mm. I think there's there's some confusion in this lady's head as to what her job actually was. We then can ask um, how have all these Afghani um, nationals got her number that they're contacting her? And how is she able to say that people who've retired and are in a sisterhood uh, are working with people who are still serving military in order to get involved in the what was then the evacuation happening in, in Afghanistan itself. And she was also talking about a private security company still operating in Kabul. So is this, is this some kind of left behind uh, operation still running there? What, well, what is it, going on? There's so many questions about this. We'll just do a few to see whether uh, our viewers pick up on why we're so interested in this story. Uh, but essentially, who is the sisterhood? Uh, what authority have they got? Who voted them into power to get involved with British military operations? And if you notice that the start of that little interview, the sneer from the uh, BBC interviewer that she'd heard mainly male voices, but now we were going to go to the female voices. Well, not military voices, but sisterhood voices. Uh, well, well uh, in fairness, you've got to remember that was BBC Women's Hour, which has a very... Uh 
particular uh, uh, focus? Uh, of, of course it does, yeah. and uh, that was going to be pushed across. So let's have a little look in a bit more detail of what this lady had to say. Uh, she says in, in the, art, the BBC article, it's been a tough week. I'm getting messages throughout the night from individual families. Here's my wife, here's my kids, passport, photos, visa. I worked with so-and-so, can you help me? This, this is astonishing to me that uh, we've just got somebody who's being contacted by people within Afghanistan. Uh, maybe people are going to contact me and say, I've got this one badly wrong, but I'm asking questions as to how this can be happening while a military operation is going on. This is the point. She says that another woman, a British officer, stayed on the phone to two female Afghan soldiers as they hid in a sewer waiting for help from the British army. So I think what, what's being said here is that a woman, a serving officer it appears, but who's a member of the sis sisterhood, is, is got a particular role within the military operation. When the British soldier arrived, the sisterhood member explained to him that the two Afghan women had served alongside her and should be uh, evacuated. So who's in charge here? Is this the British military or is this the sisterhood? This is an extraordinary claim by this lady. And I think so many questions need to be asked about what's going on. She goes on to say, you almost shut down your emotions and go into action mode. At the end of the day, we lean on our training. We're trained to deal with crisis response. Something needs doing what can I do? So she's retired, but apparently has the ability to uh, get involved in what was then a military operation in Afghanistan. Right. Okay. So what is the chain of command here? I mean, you've sort of hinted at this, but but if what she's claiming is it's, that somebody's on the phone to somebody, to a serving officer in, or serving military man in uh, Afghanistan, giving them orders? Effectively, yeah. This person should be evacuated. Exactly. Mm. Who was this person? Were they security cleared? What did we know about them? Were they a desirable person to come to UK? We have no idea, but apparently the sisterhood uh, decided that uh, that was going to happen. Those in the sisterhood are doing everything they can. One veteran named Jude is helping to run safe houses and putting on secure trips to and from the airport. Is this official? army business? Is this official UK military business? What I think it's showing us is that the situation in Afghanistan, absolutely out of control. Who, who's running things? Uh, it goes on. We do all of this just to get them, uh, those contacting us, on a list. That doesn't mean they are on, sorry, that doesn't mean they are out, uh, they're out of Afghanistan. The lists are huge. We have trained hundreds of people We've done the first tiny bit. The chaos is just beginning. So she recognizes the chaos, but could it be because that we've got a group of people with no formal responsibility at all? Uh, this is a group of two and a half thousand ex-military women who are apparently helping to run the military policy in Afghanistan. This is astonishing. So the questions that the BBC failed to ask, how was the sisterhood able to directly interact with the then ongoing military operation um, to evacuate Afghanistan. And that includes communicating with, influencing and steering serving military soldiers doing their job in theater. Uh, secondly, what security checks have been conducted on the Afghans uh, contacting retired members of the armed forces seeking assistance and extraction from Afghanistan? How many people are now listed for evacuation due to preferential personal friendships with sisterhood members? Does this come down to the fact that you're my mate and therefore I'm going to get you out? Uh, some people I can imagine might think I'm being very hard on this one, but I think we've got to be absolutely black and white about what the, the, the important factors are. Lastly, what are the security implications of former military sisterhood operatives using their military contacts an influence to assist private security firms in Afghanistan. Mm. So I think there's a lot more to come out on this article. Uh, but of course, the BBC has simply pumped it across into the public domain uh, because they think it's so exciting that so many uh, ex-military women were involved in what was going on here. 
UK column would like to know exactly what was going on and what authority uh, the Sandhurst Sisterhood has in operations in Afghanistan. And presumably they're still continuing that even though the operation is technically over. Uh, well, while the BBC came in at that angle, the mail uh, was rather dirtier because they've had a blatant attack on veterans. Uh, this was their headline from the 28th of August, revealed the secret army of 200 weapons-obsessed anti-vax ex-soldiers called Veterans for Freedom. And that's with the number four, I'm emphasising that as we'll see why in a minute, plotting attacks on vaccine centres and chaos on Britain's street. And you'd be interested that apparently this, this grisly lot, Mike, are based in Devon. And uh, the Daily Mail's terribly excited because uh, the uh, picture is showing what many people would uh, believe is a group of ram ramblers with their maps planning their next walk. But no, no, these were weapon-obsessed anti-vax ex-soldiers. And uh, if we get into the article itself, it says a sinister private army of more than 200 ex-servicemen. No, no evidence at all for that first comment there. So the mail on Sunday not really revealing anything because there's no evidence to back up what it's claiming. Uh, but then it comes in with calling itself Veterans for Freedom and founded by a former Royal Marine Commando, the self-styled paramilitary group is made up of 16 operational cells across Britain linked to a secret leadership command. How, how did that? Well, I'll bring up where's the evidence because I, I couldn't find any evidence for this in the article. This is, this is Boy's own story, uh, which uh, clearly has been made up to help smear any veteran who's got concerns about what's happening in the country, it goes on. Some members appear obsessed with weapons and have discussed violent insurrection, including attacking vaccine centres and targeting employees, what one chillingly termed bringing the fight to the people sticking the needle in. Well, my first comment to this is most former service men and women are keen to talk about weapons because weapons were their life in the military. But of course, that paragraph there is, is designed to get the reader to think that uh, there are people out there, they're going to attack vaccine centres and they're going to target what they mean is hurt employees. So this is pretty uh, incredible writing. The group insists all new recruits provide evidence of service in the armed forces. Once vetted, they're given access to a channel on Telegram, an encrypted messaging apps used by extremists and criminals due to its high security levels. Well, millions and millions, maybe billions of people use Telegram for perfectly normal communications, but not according to the Daily Mail. This has been set up simply to uh, um, support this uh, Devon-based uh, army. And uh, what am I going to put there? Hype. And then it says, over the past few weeks, the group has quietly recruited and hopes to garner public support with a peaceful march on Parliament on September the 8th, during which the ex-servicemen will wear headdress. Now we're getting into the article, um, but because basically they're now starting to smear a peaceful protest, which was always planned for September the 8th, and many military people wanted to attend that. Here's the Daily Mail uh, smearing. Um, so they went on to say this, the group's belief that it's March next month will win the hearts and minds and the support of serving members of the armed forces would appear misjudged if an anti-vaccine protest at the BBC earlier this month is anything to go by. Um, so what are they trying to say? They're trying to say that the serving military don't support veterans who are concerned about what's happening in the country. That's what, what the writer's trying to do here. It then goes on to say taking part were two parachute regiment veterans, neither linked to veterans for freedom, who were reported to the police after paratroopers helped track them down. So we're conflating a peaceful protest at the BBC where two former parachute regiment veterans attended. That's being conflated with the male's um, always own story about the uh, Devon-based army of 200. 
So it's got criticism. It's alleging that there's criticism by serving members of the armed forces, which is to try and undermine wide military support of protests against lockdown and vaccines. And then it's smearing the parachute regiment veterans with its veterans uh, for freedom story. And this is uh, how bad it is, because there is actually a group who are called Veterans for Freedom. So the mail article, the group is apparently using the number four, Veterans number four for freedom. But here is this very well-established group from 2012 called Veterans for Freedom. And what are they reporting? Perfectly reasonable um, statements about what's happening in the military. But of course, they've had to respond to this attack from the mail. And they say, take note, we're veterans for, for freedom. We're not veterans number four for freedom. We're nothing to do with this Veterans for Freedom organization. We've been established for 10 years and are not political. So immediately, people who are doing good things are having to defend themselves against this smear piece by the mail. And what do we find on the real Veterans for Justice site? Well, of course, they're pointing out that many veterans are going to the protests, including veterans who are keen bikers. And we know that there are thousands of bikers who are prepared to go to these protests. So very, very dirty stuff by the Daily Mail. And of course, at the end of the day, the Daily Mail undermining this group of people who were standing up for veterans with PTSD. So I just found overall uh, my truly uh, disgraceful piece of work by the Daily Mail. Um, so then we've got to ask, uh, what are they up to with, uh, with this article? Uh, we're going to end with this one. Uh, Trident may go to France if Scots vote out. Plans are in place to move our nuclear weapons overseas if Scotland gains independent report claims. Uh, and really, there's not very much in this article other than to suggest that perhaps uh, there might be a number of solutions to the problem of what to do with Trident uh, nuclear weapons in the event that Scotland uh, votes for independent. One might be, for example, uh, that the British government would buy the uh, naval bases from the Scottish government and that would become effectively a, an overseas territory uh, space and, and uh, they would continue to be based in Scotland. Um, others suggestions, I believe, are that they would move to Plymouth, for example. Uh, but then there's this question of uh, whether they would go to France. So what is this article designed to do? Is it just designed to, uh, to, to get uh, people wound up and, and get an argument started about this? It's testing the water, I think, uh, is what it's doing. That's, right? That is exactly what I think is going on. Now, why would uh, we be sending our nuclear deterrent to France? Well, of course, most people still don't appreciate that uh, we have been in a 50-year defence pact uh, with France since 2010, when David Cameron and Nick Clegg um, signed the Lancaster House Treaties. Uh, that was followed up in 2018 with the Sandhurst, Sandhurst uh, Treaties. Um, and uh, so we have a very close military relationship uh, with, uh, with the French. And although uh, both of those treaties do use language like uh, both countries will maintain their independent nuclear deterrents, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the connection there is is really pretty tight now what would happen to the uk in the event the trident was sent over to france would we then be kicked off the united nations security council for example well we're a permanent member there because we're a nuclear power yeah uh, and uh, therefore if we were to hand that away um we would no longer be uh, i think that this is uh, uh one of those articles as you say that's very devious yes to, to generate uh, some kind of response uh, and uh, see how see, see how the, the public reacts. Yes, indeed. Um, but of course, the undertone is again that we're heading towards the breakup of the United Kingdom. This is one of the objectives that, that's always gone along with the globalist disruption agenda to break down nation states and, of course, uh, UK operating um, as an island state of nations. Uh, particularly vulnerable to agitation. So uh, we're looking at extremely serious things here. And it's no wonder to me that we've got many, many veterans from the armed forces who are prepared to actually get out on the streets and march within peaceful protests in order to highlight the breakdown, the deliberate engineered breakdown in this country. 
Um, so we'll report more on this in coming UK column uh, news sessions. And just for the avoidance of any doubt, as the UK column has always said, we believe the power in demonstrations is when people are well-behaved, peaceful and well-informed. They know their information and can challenge authority or talk to other members of the public on the ground. That's always been our position. And we're very sure that those sorts of demonstrations joined by the force of, of, uh, of retired military personnel will be strengthened. Mm. So if you are worried about what's happening with the country, uh, should you want to get out on the streets? Well, we'd certainly say we believe that you should because it's beholden on anybody and everybody to speak out and warn about what's actually happening. And that's it for today. We'll leave it there. A, a tough start to UK column yes. for this week. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Monday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.